You're listening to Jackpot, brought to you by Jack.org Queens. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's Jackpot episode on boundaries and compassion fatigue with Maddie Squared. I am Maddie Toker. And I am Maddie Hopkins, and we are both part of the events and intersectionality team at Jack.org Queens. Before we begin, we wanted to give a content warning because we will be discussing topics of mental health, which can be very heavy. We have included resources in the description of the podcast that you can access if in need. We would like to begin with a land acknowledgement. Today, we are recording this podcast on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. We are grateful to be able to live, learn, and play on these lands. We encourage you to learn more about the lands you are currently situated on and acknowledge the significance for the Indigenous peoples who lived and continue to live upon it and whose practices and spiritualities were tied to the land and continue to develop in relation to the territory and its other inhabitants today. Okay, so before we jump into our conversation on compassion fatigue and boundaries, um, I just wanted to start off with kind of a definition of what is compassion fatigue so you know what we're referring to. So compassion fatigue is the emotional, psychological, or physical exhaustion that can follow helping others through stresses or traumas without taking the proper time to refuel yourself. And a common misconception is that compassion fatigue is actually different from burnout because it has to do with the residual emotions you're feeling after dealing with other traumas. And burnout is usually work-related, so that can lead to exhaustion and a lack of motivation And that usually progresses over time, whereas compassion fatigue can happen all at once when you're dealing with a stressful situation from another person. Yeah. And I think I think that just kind of building on that a little bit, a lot of the discussion of compassion fatigue in like current scientific literature um, refers to uh, people who work in jobs that are heavy in emotional labor. So, you know, doctors and nurses and psychologists, social workers, firefighters, those types of um, professions. But I think that in this conversation, we also want to broaden the scope to, um, you know, people who are advocating for mental health and students who are supporting their housemates and family members who are supporting the people they love. Like, I think um, we're kind of targeting this as a more broad conversation. I don't want to speak for you. So I can only say that for myself, I have 100% experienced compassion fatigue several times. And I think it's a completely normal thing that everyone experiences because you can have it in relationships and friendships or with family members. So like having this focus on it only occurring to um, like with frontline workers isn't really accurate. And so today's conversation will hopefully um, shed some light on the fact that everyone can experience compassion fatigue. Um, It's normal and it means that you have compassion to start with which is a good thing. Mm, Yeah, I totally agree. I was reading a paper about compassion fatigue and they kind of discussed how compassion fatigue is the convergence of secondary traumatic stress and cumulative burnout. And I thought that that was really interesting because, you know, not all um, traumatic stress has to be, you know, a life-threatening injury or um, a death of a loved one. It can be what is referred to as little t traumas, which include, you know, non-life-threatening injuries, and the death of a pet or bullying or um, the loss of a significant relationship. And I think that those are things that students nowadays experience quite frequently. And I know in my own life with my housemates and friends, like, you know, I frequently hear stories that are about those types of things. And so I think um, experiencing secondary traumatic stress is quite common um, for, for most people. And 
same with burnout, especially whether it's in the workplace or it's academic burnout. Um, so I think that that definition of the convergence of those two factors is a really interesting way of looking at compassion fatigue rather than just focusing it on kind of the healthcare sector. Yeah, that definitely encompasses it all. And I think that's a good like starting point for our discussion today is acknowledging that. Mm -hmm. We wanted to acknowledge that everyone experiences compassion fatigue differently. And this really depends on who you are as a person and the environment you're surrounded by. Yeah. And so a lot of the work that we do in Jack.org as a club um, kind of focuses on intersectionality. And so intersectionality can be defined as the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. And so I think that that's a really relevant point when discussing discussing compassion fatigue because, you know, no two people are the same. And so the experiences that they've lived and the identities that they hold are going to alter and impact the way that they experience compassion fatigue and what ultimately causes passion, compassion fatigue within their lives. Yeah, that definitely, it plays a huge role in how one person is going to experience this. Mm -hmm. um, and we can talk about our own experiences with compassion fatigue in a second, but uh, just as like a general overview, some of the common signs um, are a difficulty concentrating, reduced productivity, feeling like you're discouraged or hopeless. You may feel exhausted or irritable or sad or anxious. Um, and you can have less empathy towards others. And I think that this is the biggest sign that I've experienced in the past with compassion fatigue. It's the feeling that you just can't anymore. And I feel like I have a complete lack of empathy towards the person that I want to be helping. Um, and this can be a really hard feeling, but it's kind of yeah. just a result of like surpassing the threshold of what you can deal with. Your cup is overflowing. And even though you want to be there for someone, you can't. Yeah. It's almost like a D it's like you're desensitized. Like you just lose the ability to even kind of understand how they're feeling or what they're feeling because your body and your brain just literally can no longer. Yeah. You feel any. like almost detached and like yeah. numb from that, even though you so want to be doing something, you just like, you can't anymore because you're past your limit. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think in talking about that, it's also kind of important to mention the physical symptoms because compassion fatigue is very similar to a lot of other, uh, mental health, uh, disorders and, you know, things like headaches and digestive issues, muscle tension, distress and poor concentration. Those are other things that I are pretty common to experience um, when suffering from compassion fatigue. And I think those, those symptoms um, are often kind of neglected just because they might not be the most obvious, but they can accompany compassion fatigue for sure. Yeah. And because those symptoms kind of like cross paths with a lot of the other mental illness symptoms like anxiety or depression, mm -hmm. it can be hard to decipher that what you're experiencing is compassion fatigue, yeah. which is why I think this podcast episode is so important that we're shedding light on what compassion fatigue is, 
because I think a lot of people feel it and they don't have the proper words to describe what they're feeling because they don't know it exists. That's such an important point. And even, you know, for me, I, I have generalized anxiety disorder and, um, you know, there are times when I'll be experiencing some of these symptoms, but I don't really think that my anxiety has gotten any worse and I can't identify any particular triggers that are contributing to the way that I'm feeling. And so, you know, for me, learning more about compassion fatigue is just really helping me to understand what exactly is going on with my body and in, in my life, because I sometimes, you know, get worried that my anxiety is getting worse when that's not necessarily the issue. And that's not what I need to be focusing my energy on. Um, Jumping off of what other Maddie said before about intersectionality and how experiencing compassion fatigue is so different for everyone, depending on their background and who they are. um, I kind of just wanted to touch on what causes compassion fatigue and it's influenced by tons of factors. And this can make it a little easier to predict if you might experience it or just recognizing that you're going through compassion fatigue. So the first thing that I think has the biggest influence is your personality. It's how empathetic you are as a person, your capacity for others' emotional energy, um, and your own coping mechanisms. And this can have a really big influence on if you're likely to experience compassion fatigue, like a more compassionate person who just their world revolves around others' emotions and being there for other people. I think that can make you really susceptible to experiencing it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually read a quote um, before recording this and it just said, the more compassion you have, the more compassion fatigue you will have. And so it's just kind of like, you know, being compassionate is such a beautiful um, trait to have. And at the same time, it's just, you know, building the skills to cope with the compassion fatigue that comes with that is what um, I think a lot of us need to need to work on and learn more about. And it's really a double-ended sword because like, something I love about myself is that I have such a big heart and that other people really matter so much to me. Like I always want to be there hearing about my friends' experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, but like at the same time, it can make it so difficult because when I see myself falling into this trap of compassion fatigue, it's like, I mean, I set myself up. Like I love that I'm here for other people and that I'm compassionate, but then it just makes you so much more likely to Um, feel other people's traumas and stresses so much heavier on your shoulders. Absolutely. And I think it's kind of like, you know, in the moment when you're hearing those things, you care about the person so much that you just, you know, you open your heart and your, your mind to everything that they're sharing. And then when the conversation is done, some people are able to walk away and that's the end of the conversation. Whereas, you know, for people like us, we hold on to it and it kind of becomes a part of us. And it's like, how do I continue living and thriving when I'm holding on to all of this? Um, you know, trauma or stress or negative energy, whatever, whatever it was that you took on. Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize that if you're in a situation, when you think that you may experience compassion fatigue, just check in on yourself and ask how you're feeling. Like if you're caring for someone who's ill, either mentally or physically, or if someone who's really close to you is going through a traumatic time, like maybe a breakup or something like that, Or if you're working at an emotionally taxing job, like you mentioned before, as a frontline worker or in healthcare or psychology, um, you just have to watch out for yourself because those are settings when you might be all the more likely to experience compassion fatigue. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, if you had a previous trauma in your life, you may just have to check yourself and say, like, I want to be here for this person, but I've just experienced something traumatic myself. Do I have the same capacity that I used to have? 
to be there yeah. for other people or is it too triggering for me? Yeah. And I think that that plays really nicely into the, you know, the other part of this conversation, which is boundaries. And we'll get into that a little bit more later, but you know, the two go hand in hand for sure. They're so intertwined. Yeah. So I think kind of building on that a little bit, the individualistic nature of compassion fatigue also means that the ways in which everybody copes with compassion fatigue may differ. And so I think, you know, um, other Maddie and I both have our own experiences dealing with compassion fatigue. And in in my own um, life, there's definitely, it kind of compassion fatigue comes up in different aspects of my life. And so recently, this past year, I started a new, a new job um, working in a residential location, supporting individuals with various intellectual disabilities and psychiatric illnesses. Um, and so this was a really big jump for me. Um, and, you know, working with individuals who are going through different traumas and stressors every single day and then figuring out how to come home from my job and not hold on to all of that. And so my therapist, who is a phenomenal human being, she kind of opened me up to this one coping mechanism that really works well for me. And I think that's partially because I'm a very imaginative person. Um, but she told me that, you know, anytime you're in a situation where you can feel yourself taking on this energy that you're going to take home with you or that you're going to hold on to, to kind of imagine it in a written letter and then fold the letter up and package it as if you're you know, going to mail it and then close your eyes and imagine yourself sending the letter. And then when you send the letter, like you're letting go of that energy, like you are sending it somewhere else and it is no longer yours to hold. And so I think that that's, for me, it's, it's been a really interesting way of kind of separating myself from the thoughts and the stories and the experiences that I've had. Um, and I don't know other Maddie, how, if you've, if you've done anything similar to that, but for me, just kind of the act of acknowledging that it is not mine to hold on to, and I, I can let it go and I can send it away has been a really powerful step in my own journey with compassion fatigue. Wow. That's really an incredible skill. And I'm the same kind of person. I like to be able to imagine things and your therapist sounds like a queen. Oh, she um, is. She is a queen. <laughs> yeah. She sounds Shout out to Rebecca. I like similar to you, therapy has really, really gotten me through experiencing compassion fatigue and just helped me be like a more self-aware person as a whole. Mm. And it constantly makes me feel like what you were talking about before, um, how much of others weight I'm carrying on my shoulders. And it's helped me learn how to like set boundaries in those relationships. And um, an analogy that my therapists use about setting boundaries is an oxygen mask like you have on an airplane she'll say, you have to put your oxygen mask on before helping others put theirs on, which is exactly what they say on an airplane. But it's yeah. so true because until I look at my needs and what I need to get out of a situation and kind of put my imaginative oxygen mask on, I can't help the others around me until I'm like really showing up for myself. So that's kind of what I visualize when I'm going through time that I think I might fall into a pattern of compassion fatigue and I need to put up a boundary to protect myself. I love that. And I think that that's also very powerful because a conversation that we have a lot in our club is kind of how mental health and physical health need to be treated the same. And that's mm -hmm. such a powerful way of looking at it. Like if you can't breathe, you're going to give yourself oxygen first before you're going to, you know, help other people. And that needs to be the same when it comes to taking care of our, our own mental well-being, you know, yeah, like, it's like it's, what you do. So you don't get a cold, you know, like you need protective mechanisms, not only for your physical health, but for your mental well-being. Oh, I love that. So 
So whether it's a letter that you're writing all out and you're sending it away or <laughs> you're putting your oxygen mask on before you help others, like it's going to be different for everyone, but you have to visualize what mechanisms are going to protect you in the long run. And the work you do in therapy is definitely not something that happens overnight. It takes a lot of hard work because good things take time. Um, but in my opinion, it's completely worth it. And it's really helped me in times of crisis. Um, but I do know that this option is not necessarily accessible to everyone. Um, if it is accessible to you, I would highly recommend it. But if it's not, know that there are a lot of other ways to cope with compassion fatigue. And we're going to talk about those now. Yeah, absolutely. There's tons of different ways. And I think, again, with the intersectionality lens on, everybody's going to benefit differently from different resources. And so we kind of want to just discuss several and then whatever resonates with you or you can take away from this conversation, we hope that that, you know, helps you in some way. But another resource that um, a lot of people use is just having a strong support system. And whether that's, you know, your parents or your siblings or your housemates or friends who you don't see all the time, but when you do check in, they really, you know, fill up your bucket. Um, having, having people who, you know, make you feel good and remind you of the, the happy things and, you know, don't kind of focus, always focus so much on, on the stressful situations and the traumatic situations, having, having relationships like that is incredibly important. And in adding to that, also having relationships where you can talk through what you're experiencing and, you know, having a safe environment and someone who you trust to really just, uh, acknowledge what you're feeling, because I think acknowledging that you're struggling with compassion fatigue is such an important step in kind of learning to cope with it. Because if, if you're dealing with compassion fatigue, but avoiding, you know, identifying what exactly is, is causing this distress in yourself, then it can be a lot harder to overcome it and learn how to, to minimize it in your life. Yeah. The support system is like, is really huge in combating compassion fatigue and not only having a strong support system with the people around you, but having a strong connection with what's inside you. Mm. And I know these words are thrown around a lot, but I'm going to say them mindfulness and self-care. Yes. They sound cliche. Everybody uses them in the mental wellness space, but it's because they're important and because they can help you so much. They are powerful. Yeah. Really powerful. Um, so in case you don't know, mindfulness um, is all about living with intention and awareness in the present moment. And this is really difficult for someone who's been working on mindfulness for a really long time. It's really hard to master. Like <laughs> we we're so about what's going to happen in the future and what's happened in the past. That's really hard to just think about what's happening in that moment. Um, but being mindful and self-aware can really help when kind of fighting compassion fatigue and acknowledging these thoughts when they arise and then asking yourself how they make you feel that's personally like kind of one of my favorite things to do. Um, and after acknowledging your thoughts, accepting that some emotions are uncomfortable is also really important. Uncomfortable emotions aren't necessarily wrong, but they're really real. Um, and kind of just reminding ourselves that we're really resilient. We can get through uncomfortable emotions and acknowledge that they're there. And it doesn't mean that they're bad. It's all a part of growing and being who we are. And it's unfortunate that we have to go through periods of discomfort, but it's all about the human experience. Absolutely. And I think another thing to keep in mind that can help um, in anyone's journey with compassion fatigue, and again, this is a very overused statement, but it's it's relevant to this conversation. 
Um, if you are experiencing compassion fatigue, you are not alone. I think, you know, everybody, everybody's experiencing compassion fatigue in their own ways. And whether or not we're acknowledging that, I think that's part of why we're having this conversation because it's still a very under-discussed topic in, in the mental health community, I think. Um, but it's so normal. Exactly. Compassion fatigue is normal. And it's, it's something that, you know, it's almost a good thing that you're experiencing compassion fatigue because it would be worrisome if you were, you know, listening to hard stories and hard experiences and not feeling, you know, similar emotions. So it's, it's more, it's not so much that we shouldn't experience compassion fatigue. It's just about learning to learning to deal with it and accepting that this is something that many people deal with frequently. And we are all in this together. I think taking on that view of like, this is something we're going to experience it and not trying to fight the fact that we're experiencing it, experiencing it, but more Mm -hmm. just, um, learning how to cope with it was a really hard learning curve for me. But after I understood that like, it's going to happen and it's just about how I approach it. I think that's when I started to help myself out a lot more. Um, and a huge part of this was practicing self-care. I mentioned it before and self-care is often, I think, thrown around in the media, like it's face masks and it's bubble baths, but I don't know. I think this is far from the truth. Maybe it's that for you, but it's so different for everyone that we can't mm-hmm. just label it one thing and smack a label on it. This is self-care. This is what it is. It's really, really personal and intimate. Um, And for me, that can sometimes be like stepping away from the needs of others for a while. Like I mentioned before, putting on my oxygen mask, that is self-care. It's not being selfish. It's a coping mechanism. And it's what we need to do to get through some of the really hard times so we can show up for others in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something that I just kind of want to quickly mention um, that relates to self-care in this whole discussion is just my mom has this saying and she always says, be gentle with yourself. And I love it because in my mind, I just get so frustrated. Like if I'm having a really bad day and say it's compassion fatigue and I'm just like, I wish that I wasn't so attached with other people's emotions and feelings. And, you know, why does my brain do this? Instead of, you know, saying the whys and getting mad with something that I really can't control, I need to be gentle with myself and kind of accept that it is happening, like you said, Maddie, and instead find ways of, you know, making myself feel good and maybe doing a little less that day and just listening to what my body really needs. But I really love the saying of being gentle because it's just, you know, that's what we all need to be with ourselves. And if you were listening to someone else who's telling you that they're suffering from compassion fatigue, you're going to be gentle with them, right? Like, you know, if someone discloses that with you, you're, you're not going to tell them, well, why is your brain doing that? And so, you know, me, me doing that to myself, there's no, that's not beneficial. That's not, it's not going to help me. So one thing that I at least need to focus on is just treating myself the same way that I treat others when they're dealing with uh, things like compassion fatigue. Yes, Mama Hopkins. She is so (laughs) on point there because something that I was going to mention was that my therapist has said something along the same lines to me, but with the exact same meaning. Like I tend to be very judgmental and hard on myself. Mm. And that's something we work on a lot is like, acknowledging the judgments and then catching them midair and not like letting them overcome you. Um, but in doing that, I like, sometimes I'll say these things that are in my head and then I say them out loud. And my therapist is like, hold on a second. Did you really just say that to yourself? Like, that's really rude. Would you say that to your best friend if you were talking to her? And I would say, no, of course not. And she said, why do you talk to yourself that way then? 
And I was like, she really stumped me with that one because (laughs) I don't know why I talk to myself that way. Like I need to be compassionate and kind towards myself and treat myself as my own best friend. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's just the way to get through because if you're constantly being judgmental and just not being gentle with yourself, it's really going to screw you over in the long run. So if you're taking something away from this episode, be your own best friend, treat yourself like you want to be, want to treat others, be compassionate and kind and gentle with yourself. I love that. I absolutely love that. So just kind of, you know, again, building off of those thoughts, a final thing to consider when learning to cope with compassion fatigue is honesty. And this includes being honest with yourself and also with the people you're talking with, which brings us to our conversation about boundaries. So I've often struggled to verbalize and communicate to another person what kind of boundaries I need to put up in order to be there for myself. And some examples of things I've used in the past with a friend who I really want to be there for, but I just need to focus on myself at that moment is saying, hey, I really want to be here for you right now, but I need to take some time for myself. Here are other resources I can direct you to. Um, Another example of something I've said is, I love you so much and I really wish I could do more to support you right now, but I can't be there for you in the way I want to until I show up for myself. And this kind of, like, you don't need to justify showing up for yourself. This is just something we need to do. And sometimes it happens at a bad time when we really, really want to support someone around us, but we're just not capable of doing it. So kind of having words you can use to share your boundaries with someone and communicate, this is what I need right now. Can you please respect this? I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I too struggle with setting boundaries. And I just kind of quickly want to mention that if you're listening to this and you're like Maddie and I, and you don't really, you're not great at articulating when you need to um, step away, literally rewind and write down what Maddie just said, because like, I'm going to, I'm going to have to use these prompts because I still, I, I, you know, it's a really hard thing having to put yourself first, but sometimes it has to be done and it can be done in a very respectful way. Um, and I think this kind of ties into the jack.org be there rules. And so these are kind of just, you know, reminders when you're feeling overwhelmed in a situation and, um, you can follow these steps to ensure that you are still supporting the person who is struggling without crossing a boundary that may affect your own mental health and well-being. So the five be there rules um, include the first one, saying what you see and starting the conversation if they appear to be struggling. Um, The second is showing that you care. And that's huge because you can, you know, set a boundary, but still show that you care and still show that they are someone that you love or that you care about and you want to see thrive. You just might not be in a place to help them. The third step is to hear them out and be a good listener. And again, if you're not in a place to be doing this, absolutely set that boundary. And um, this kind of kind of ties us into steps four and five. Four is to know your role and understand that you're not a professional and you're not trained to be listening to these conversations or supporting them and navigating through these stressful experiences. So, um, you know, as much as you do care about them and they their experiences are valid, it's not necessarily your job to give them the answers and tell them how to navigate their situation. And so this kind of brings us to the final point, which is really connected to setting boundaries and it's connect them to help. And so if you're in a situation where you do need to use a prompt, like the ones that Maddie just gave, 
um, you know, you can say those things, you know, I love you, but I need to take some time for myself. Here are some resources and people that can help you. Here is, you know, the number of a therapist. Do you want me to help you set up an appointment? Here is the number to the crisis line. Like there, you know, you can still um, be there for people that you love without crossing a boundary and having, having it impact your own well-being. I think that the Jack be there rules are just incredible. It's like exactly what you need to do in a situation, acknowledging, you know, someone's going through a really traumatic time. I really, it matters to me a lot that you're struggling right now. I wish I could be there for you. I can't right now and I'm not a trained professional, but here's who can help you. Like that is just a great approach. And um, if you're in this situation, you can find these rules on the jack.org website to help you out. Absolutely. And so I guess kind of just diving into this conversation about boundaries now, we should probably first define our um, use of the word boundary and what exactly we're talking about. So in this case, um, what are boundaries? Essentially taking on what you feel you can handle. And, um, you know, others would define it as a definitive limit that is set to protect your well-being. Yeah. And boundaries are fluid. Like you need different things at different times in your life. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's perfectly okay to take that. They're going to change depending on the people you're surrounded with your own mental health and the situation you're in. And it's important to acknowledge that, let them change, let them be fluid. Um, Mm -hmm. And boundaries can be set in many different environments. Like it may be at work with romantic relationships, social relationships, even in parenting or with family members. These boundaries can either be physical or emotional boundaries. Yeah. And so lacking strong boundaries can actually lead to resentment in relationships. And it can also lead to burnout at work or with school, which both contribute to poor mental health. Yeah, I think um, setting boundaries is super important to maintaining our mental health. And it's all about advocating and communicating our own needs Mm -hmm. and protecting them. It forces you to kind of think about yourself first. And this isn't in a selfish way, but it's in a protective way and a beneficial way for you in the long run. Um, It really just shows you can still be a compassionate and a caring person without letting others' emotions consume you. Absolutely. I kind of look at boundaries as, you know, holding yourself to a standard. Like you wouldn't, you know, when you're at work, there's a standard to treat your customers with respect. Same way in your own life, there's a standard to have boundaries and a standard to, you know, only do what you're able to handle and what you're comfortable doing. Yeah. I Um, think setting boundaries is also a form of self-care. Like it may not be the stereotypical picture of self-care, but it's all about like helping yourself in the long run and absolutely making decisions based on our needs. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, we've already touched on this, but you and I both struggle with setting boundaries. And so we also, in this conversation, just want to offer a few tips for setting boundaries and um, where to get started if you're, you know, this, this thought of setting a boundary is completely new or foreign to you. Yeah. The first thing I want to say on that topic is there's no need for you to explain or justify why you need to set boundaries. It's something you have the right to do. And while it may be challenging to communicate this to someone who you love or who you're really close to, who you may not often have really definitive boundaries with, it's okay to say no. You don't need to feel guilty or like you're betraying someone. And I think that's the part of boundaries that I really struggled with is I often felt like if I couldn't be there for someone and be there everything and be there to catch them when they fall, I would feel guilty for not being there. But 
it's really important to know it's normal to say no. Absolutely. And so, you know, instead of making the statement about the person on their end, you can frame it with an I statement because, you know, people can't really argue with something that you yourself are experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so this is just, you know, definitely one of the harder steps is um, being able to just say it, you know, just get it out. And once you've, and the thing is, once you've done it once or twice, it does become easier and it does become something that um, I think you become more grateful for, you know, like in the, in the situations where I have been able to set boundaries, which, you know, there aren't many, (laughs) I do struggle with it. Um, But in those situations, I am always grateful after I have set the boundary because, you know, I realize that I'm, I'm protecting my own well-being and I can still provide them with steps that they can take. Maddie, I completely agree. Setting boundaries is so challenging and it's something I also really struggle with. And I think it's just going to be a work in progress forever. Mm -hmm. Like through all the different relationships and different environments I'm in, I'm just going to, I'm just going to have to keep working at it. Um, And I also think it's about like understanding the specific relationship you're a part of, because I definitely have like certain friendships that boundaries are more important than in my other friendships, just depending on the person. Um, like in some of my relationships, there are almost patterns that I can anticipate happening and how situations will fan out. Yeah. Um, so kind of like setting an expectation of how that pattern will happen. And I often have to ask myself, like, when have I had a hard time saying no in the past or when have my boundaries been pushed in the past and how can I stop that from happening in the future to protect myself? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's like, really powerful. Yeah. Knowing the situation you're in can really help you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that I still struggle with is when I do set that boundary, I find that um, for me personally, I still do feel a lot of guilt. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I personally don't have any um, answers or tips for how to, um, you know, overcome that guilt other than I think it, when you're, when you're new to setting boundaries or it's something that you do struggle with, it's not uncommon to feel guilty, but you shouldn't feel guilty. Yeah. Um, I feel guilty too. I think it's so normal. mm -hmm. And I think it just ties back to what you said your mom tells you, which is to be gentle with yourself. Right. This is all part of the process and we really need to handle ourselves delicately and be compassionate and kind and treat ourselves like our best friends. And as hard as setting boundaries can be, I definitely have had to become better with this process and also better with identifying my own compassion fatigue since the COVID pandemic started. Um, And I find now that when I am interacting with people, whether it's virtually or the rare occurrence when it is in person, um, I find that I take a lot more away from those interactions than I used to. And I think it's just, you know, I think part of that is because we all miss socializing and we miss being with people. And so when you are with someone who's experiencing any type of emotion, it's just, for me at least, I I love to socialize. And so I I really try to latch on to anything that, any, any type of interaction that we're having, but as a result, I then, you know, finish that conversation or that interaction. And it's really, really stuck with me. Um, and I don't know, Maddie, if you've uh, had any similar experiences since COVID has started, but that's just something that I've really noticed. Yeah. I think because we're having way fewer interactions when we do have them, they're all the more meaningful and powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's why it's especially important to know who you are and know that if you might experience compassion fatigue, how to identify it and what resources are there to help you out. Absolutely. And I think also just kind of building on this uh, topic a little bit, I think compassion fatigue can also happen 
in many different ways. It doesn't have to be like, I think a lot of the examples that I've used throughout this chat have been in-person discussions or like when mm -hmm. you're, when you're talking face-to-face -face with someone, but it can also be through texts or through a virtual call, a phone call. Um, you know, compassion fatigue can manifest from a whole bunch of different types of interactions. And so that's also just important to kind of be aware of. Yeah, I completely agree. In wrapping up today's episode, we just wanted to go over some key takeaways. So if you skipped through the rest of the episode and you're looking for the big headlines <laughs> to take away, um, if you have compassion, you will likely experience compassion fatigue. And as incredible as it is to be a person with a big heart, compassion fatigue and setting boundaries can be immensely challenging. It's really hard not to take on others' traumas when you see them struggling, especially if you care for them. But we wanted to remind you to be your own best friend, treat yourself with compassion and kindness, and know when you need to take a step back. And know that you can always come back to this episode if you need advice or help setting boundaries and navigating compassion fatigue, or even just a reminder that you are not alone in what you're experiencing and you are resilient. Thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. And thank you, other Maddie, for listening. And Maddie, it has been such a pleasure. I hope we do this again soon. It's been a great episode. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye, guys.